Well, hey, everybody, good morning. Is, is it my hair? Is that what you're all clapping for? My hair started growing again. Well, thank you for your applause. That was unnecessary, but uh, thanks for uh, your enthusiasm. You haven't even heard what I have to say yet, so you might not, uh, uh, might not be cheering in a bit. But I got to tell you, it is so good uh, to be back with you again this morning. Uh, man, I missed you. Our, our family has missed you. And uh, I, my daughter said it best. My daughter, Kate, just a few weeks ago, she said, Daddy, I really miss Genesis. When can we go back to our church? And uh, I think she said what we were all thinking. And while we loved our time away, uh, we had a wonderful, fantastic uh, summer. Uh, it is good to be back. And if you're new today, uh, for those of you that don't know, I had the privilege of taking a 14-week sabbatical this summer, and uh, thanks to uh, just the kindness and generosity of this church, uh, in addition to a generous financial grant uh, from the Lilly Endowment, my family and I were able to get away and really experience some amazing things uh, our 14 weeks together. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd love to share with you for just a few minutes, uh, give you just a a brief recap of some of the highlights of our summer, some of the things that uh, I was able to do, we were able to do as a family, and uh, and then I want to take a little time and uh, just bring you uh, the next message in our series, uh, Humans of the Bible. But uh, uh, looking way back to May, I I got to spend my first week at home, and it was all in preparation for going to Israel. Um, I kicked off my sabbatical with a two-week trip uh, to Israel. It was my first time ever, and I got to tell you, it exceeded my expectations. Uh, better than I had heard, and uh, man, just a life changer for me. Um, I only have one regret. Uh, Jenny didn't go with me, my wife, and uh, man, if I could do something over again, I would have loved to have had her there. I wish we could have experienced uh, this together, but I was one of 40 people uh, on my particular group. I've got a a picture here of our team. I'm in the uh, far back left, second from the left. We're on the southern steps just outside of the temple uh, in Jerusalem there. Most from our group were were uh, from the USA, but we had some people from England, from Australia as well. And uh, again, this was taken uh, in the old city. Towards the end of our trip, we traveled with a fantastic Bible teacher, uh, a young guy by the name of Brad Gray. Uh, He let us know well in advance of our trip that we had to be physically prepared for this two-week experience. We had to be ready to hike five to ten miles a day. He talked about the type of clothing we needed, uh, good hiking boots, boots broken, ready to go, a good backpack with a water reservoir, and he wasn't kidding uh, either. Uh, we didn't know. Here's the way our trip worked. Every day, we didn't know our daily itinerary. Uh, we did not know where we were going and what was before on us on any given day, and so we'd simply get onto our tour bus together, uh, and uh, here's how the day, that the, the experiences typically worked for us. Minutes before the bus stop, um, our teacher would let us know how much water we needed from the day, and then before you knew it, the bus would stop, all right? He'd make an announcement, come, let's go, please. Forty of us would gather up our things as quickly as possible, and in two minutes or less, follow him off the bus, and then he would just take off down a dusty trail and we'd follow him, often out in the middle of nowhere. And so many times we'd hike for a bit and then he'd stop, we'd find some rocks, we'd all sit down, pull out our study guides, and he'd teach for 30 or 45 minutes uh, for us. We'd maybe start piecing some things together of where we were, we'd close everything up, we'd start hiking some more. There was one day in particular, again, we were out in the middle of nowhere, we came up to this chain link fence and all of a sudden a four-wheeler 
All right, a person on an ATV comes flying down a dusty road out of nowhere on the other side of this fence, drives up to the fence, unlocks the chain link fence. We all walk in, and again, we just keep walking, and all of a sudden, these artifacts begin to appear. And then, like so many occasions, we crossed over the crest of a hill finally to a picture like this, this site. And we were in the ancient city of Scatopolis. And I'll talk briefly about Scatopolis in just a few minutes. But our trip, our experience were, experiences were always like this, a big surprise, a big reveal. And then we'd spend an hour here, and he'd explain to us the significance of, of such a location. But here was the humorous part of it. On just the other side of the uh, experience, like this place, Scatopolis, was a really big parking lot full of tour buses. Everybody else drove in the main gate, parked in the parking lot, and stepped out to see this, but we had to work for it. And it was like this every single day, and I loved every single minute of it because Brad's philosophy was just this, if you have to work for it, if you have to walk the ground as the people walk the ground, as Jesus walked the ground, you'll remember it for the rest of your life. Uh, a few other highlights for me. This next picture here, uh, our day two in the trip uh, was down in the Negev Desert in southern Israel. Uh, we are probably an hour or two from Kadesh Barnea. They know for sure that the Israelites, when they were wandering in the wilderness, went to Kadesh Barnea. This is a, the world's largest erosion crater, a crater uh, called Maktesh. We hiked in it one day for four hours. Uh, and then went further down into southern Israel, walked another few hours. It, it reached 110 degrees that day, marching around in the desert, in the wilderness. And man, what perspective that the Israelites did it for 40 years. And so we survived our six hours, but man, never forget that. Another one here is a, a picture, one of my favorites from the top of Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel actually. Uh, but if you look out off in the distance, this is the Jezreel Valley. We hiked to the top of Mount Carmel. It took us a couple of hours to get to the top. Again, had a wonderful teaching here. And again, just part of the humor. We crossed over the ridge, walked through these trees. We are a sweaty, dirty mess. And there are all these people getting off of tour bus is looking at us like, where in the world did you come from? Do you know you can drive to the top? And, uh, and then one more here, just another favorite of mine. This is Mount Arbel uh, overlooking uh, the Gennesaret Plain, the Sea of Galilee in the background there. Capernaum uh, would be off to the left at the very tip of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did most uh, of his ministry. But we hiked to the top of Mount Arbel, and this is most likely where Jesus gave the Great Commission. When he said to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, preach the gospel. And, uh, man, so significant, again, to experience it on foot, to see it uh, with your own eyes. I know some of you have had the privilege of doing, uh, of making a trip like this. And I would tell the rest of you, man, get it on your list. Uh, get it on your list to make a trip to the Holy Land because it changes everything. I, I will never read my Bible again. Uh, the same. And uh, yeah, that's the important part of that. I will never, I will never read my... I need to re rework that sentence for the next service. And, uh, and you're going to hear some stories and look at my pictures for the next five years, all right? So just uh, uh, get ready. Hey, write this down, all right? Uh, Friday night, September the 29th. Uh, my Bible teacher, uh, Brad Gray, lives in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, former teaching pastor. He studied in Israel, takes people there, takes people to Turkey. 
he's going to be here. Friday night, September the 29th, we're going to do a three-hour event with him here, a teaching that I've heard. This next slide kind of illustrates it. Uh, It's a teaching which he calls the restoration of all things. And over a couple of hours, he's going to teach through, believe it or not, the entire Bible from beginning to end, showing how it all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then specifically, what's our role as Christ followers in this world and during this time and in this season, all right? So Friday night, September the 29th, we're bringing him here thanks to the grant that I received. And so it's part of the gift that we receive as a church. And so again, Friday, September the 29th, we'll talk about signups a little bit more uh, over the next couple of weeks. So uh, after the trip from Israel, I came home. I had a few weeks uh, just to recoup, recoup with family. We had a lot of baseball games. I used a lot of my downtime to review my notes and uh, do some reading. By the end of June, uh, our family went off to St. Joseph, Michigan for a long weekend. I served at a church there from 2000 to 2005. And so it was so fun to worship with that church again and reconnect with old friends. Uh, we went on to Springfield, Illinois, uh, where I was able to attend the church where I grew up in. And again, just see some lifelong friends that we hadn't seen in a very long time. And then on July the 4th, uh, our family headed to Alaska, and uh, man, if you've been there, wow, I mean, what, a, what an incredible place to visit. Um, our trip started in Fairbanks, uh, where we spent a couple of days, panned for some gold, saw the Alaskan pipeline. We took a train ride from Ver- Fairbanks to Denali National Park, uh, where we got a glimpse of the largest peak uh, in North America. To see Denali was fantastic. Uh, from there, we took a bus ride down to Anchorage and then eventually to the uh, coastal port of Seward where we boarded a ship for a seven-day cruise uh, along the Alaskan coast. And man, so many things to see. One of my favorites here was the Hubbard Glacier uh, that we saw as a family. The boat just sat there for an hour and you could watch the ice, cat they call it calving, and fall into the water. It sounded like thunder uh, as it fell uh, from, from these uh, these glaciers. Uh, we took a, a float plane ride uh, into the Misty Fjords National Monument. Again, just beautiful creation. We got to see Juno and Ketchikan and uh, some other really cool places. We wrapped up our cruise uh, in Vancouver, Canada, where we added on three days. And uh, this is looking from Grouse Mountain, uh, Vancouver in the background. Vancouver is one of the most beautiful cities I have ever visited. And I got to tell you, too, we also visited a great church there that we found by accident uh, on a Sunday. And so, it was, again, it was just a wonderful experience. And then we came back to Indiana, right, because you got to come back to Indiana, But uh, we were home for a couple of weeks, and then to top it off, just a couple of weeks ago, Jenny and I got five days together uh, in New York City at the beginning of August. Two of our closest friends, he's a pastor down in Indy, uh, joined us. Jenny and I had never been to New York City before, all right? So this was a first, and our goal uh, was to experience the city like locals do. Like, we didn't want to stand out as a tourist. I mean, we wanted to just blend in and see the city. And so here's one of our pictures uh, there in New York City. Jenny had that idea day one. She says, let's get those shirts, and we wore them all day long. And people looked at us like fools and said silly things all day long, but it was great. We, uh, we rode bikes uh, in Central Park. Uh, that was fun. We, uh, we uh, had some great pizza in Brooklyn, and uh, so that was great. We saw the 9-11 Museum and the Statue of Liberty. We went to a Broadway show and to Chinatown and to 
Little Italy, and we even sat in the live studio audience for the Kelly and Ryan show. All right, men, hang with me. All right, I love my wife. All right, and so we went, but I will say this it was about 10 minutes into the show where the thought crossed my mind it's probably time to go back to work. All right, I mean, if it's, if it's come to this, I probably need to go back to work. But we also visited Hillsong Church in New York City, we visited the prayer service at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Uh, which was so memorable, and uh, again, what a city, what a really cool trip. In between travels, I enjoyed riding my bike a lot. I rode the Monon down to downtown Indy several times. It was one of my favorite things to do. I loved all the downtime with my wife and kids. I did some reading and studying. Uh, not too much, though. Um, we visited all sorts of churches here locally. I enjoyed letting go, catching my breath. Uh, if the goal was to rest... I rested, I feel rested, my hair even started growing again, you know, during that time of rest. But uh, here's some things quickly that I took away, some that I'm still processing. Number one, I just say this, rest is a gift. I mean, it really is a gift. And uh, the sabbatical was a gift. It was a gift from this church, it was a gift from the Lilly Endowment, but most importantly, a gift from the Lord. And um, I know that I need rest. Uh, we all need rest in our lives. And a 14-week sabbatical doesn't come around uh, very often. And, well, let's just be true. Most of us will, most of you will never get an opportunity uh, probably like that. But do you know what? God has offered Sabbath rest for every single one of us. And it's there. Uh, it's there every week, ready to be taken. I mean, he ordered the universe in such a way that we would take one day a week and break from the work. And enjoy the gift of his rest. And I know I want to make this a better practice in my life. And I want to talk about how as a church we can do better at making rest a practice in our lives. The second thing is this. I'm a mess. Um, I'm wound pretty tightly, I find. I have a hard time letting things go. I take things personally. I've got plenty of insecurities. I worry and obsess. And it's like a heavy load that I try and carry around all by myself. But do you know what God did for me? Uh, about eight weeks into the sabbatical, he finally took that load off of my shoulders and reminded me that I've got this, all right, and uh, that he wants to carry these things for me. And I know that he's not finished with me yet. I know that I'm still a work in progress, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful for his grace. I'm reminded that my relationship with the Lord is the most important relationship in my life and that I need the Lord, I need him more than I know and realize. He's teaching me a lot about dependence. He's teaching me what it means to listen to him and what it means to walk with him. Uh, next to the Lord, I, I know, I know that my relationship with Jenny first and then my kids are the most important relationships I have on this planet, and I'm grateful for a wife that loves the Lord. Um, I'm thankful for Jenny that she loves me, she loves our family, she loves this church, she's my best friend, she's my greatest supporter, and I want to be faithful to her as long as I live. And then Joel and Luke and Kate, well, they make life interesting, uh, but life would not be the same without them. And they make life fun and worth living, and I love the adventures that we've taken and those adventures that God has before us, and I can't wait to see what God is going to do in them in the years to come. Here's something else. I still love this church, and I love Genesis, and I love Genesis deeply, and I am called to Genesis, and there is no other place that I'd rather spend my life than right here in central Indiana and serving alongside of all of you. Uh, at the same time, I am really excited about our team, our staff. Uh, they threw me a great party uh, the day that I came back. We took this fun picture here. We're not traveling as a Broadway show, if that's what it uh, looks like. But they were so kind and gracious and welcoming me, me back. 
did they do a great job serving you this summer or what? Didn't they do an awesome job? Even Ben Krause, I mean, even, even heard good things about Ben, but no, I, I love this staff. I am so excited, the team that the Lord has put together. Uh, I believe that he's going to do great things through each of us. And, uh, and, and lastly, I'll just say this before we continue on. I'm excited about where the Lord is leading us as a church. Um, I'm really excited about what he's doing here. I love our mission. Um, I love our, our passion. I love that we're making disciples and I get excited when I think about every man and every woman and every student living as kingdom workers right here in this community and around this world. I know that we've got a ton of work to do. There is so much to do before us. But if we're faithful, if we'll pray, and if we'll trust the Lord, he's going to use every single one of us. And we're going to help a whole bunch of people find their way back to God uh, in the years to come and by his grace and, and through this church. So thank you. Thank you again. Uh, I thank you for supporting me and my family uh, this summer with your, with your prayers. Thanks for caring for each other and for the staff while I was gone. It's good to be back. And uh, I, I'm just really looking forward to what this next year has for us. Let's pray real quick and then we'll continue. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again for the gift uh, of some time away for my family. Um, I, I, I feel, I believe that's an incredible blessing. And I wish every person here could get an opportunity like the one that you chose to give to me. And so thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your work in my heart. Thanks for your work in our church and for your faithfulness here. And I love hearing the stories, Lord, of what you're doing in people's lives and what you accomplished, you know, even while I was away. Thanks for our staff and for our team. Uh, Lord, we want to trust you in great and in deep ways, and we believe that you've got wonderful things ahead of us as a church, and so teach us what faithfulness looks like, and uh, Lord, just continue to change lives here, and we want to play a great part in bringing light to this world and light to this community. Thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have one of your own, you might find one around the room on the floor. You can turn to page 702. Feel free to use something like the YouVersion app if you prefer the electronic uh, device there. Um, here, here's the thing. We're continuing. We've got just two weeks left in this summer-long series called The Humans of the Bible. Um, I'll be preaching this message that I'm sharing with you today next week in Carmel. You're going to get the privilege of hearing from Jerry Neville. Jerry's our newest staff member. He's our associate campus pastor in Carmel. He's preaching over there today. He's going to come over here next week. You'll get to hear from him if you haven't met Jerry yet. And then I'll be back here again on September the 10th and preaching regularly uh, here on Sundays as a part of our Sunday uh, morning team. Today, I want to introduce you to a man, a man who everyone had given up on. Um, this is a hopeless soul. This is a man uh, others said was too sick, much too dangerous. You could say that he'd fallen so far in his life that no one wanted anything to do with him whatsoever. He had no hope. That is until the day that he encountered our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in this man's life today is this. And if you want to write this down in your notes, that is that no one is beyond the love and the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. No one. No one is beyond his love and his grace. That means that every man, uh, that means that every woman that is here today, that means every man and woman that's not here with us today, every student, every child in this world is a unique creation of God, never too far 
or out of reach of his love and grace. And what I want you to pay close attention to today as we look at this is how this one encounter with Jesus is going to change everything for this man. I mean, no one else could help him. No one could heal his wounds. No one could make the pain go away. No one that is except for Jesus. And the fact is the same is true for you and me too. The same is true for us today. It's true not only of you, but it's true of that friend of yours right now. Uh, it could be true for, for your husband. It could be true for your wife. It could be true of your son or your daughter who has drifted. Maybe true of a classmate or a roommate. No one is beyond the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is going to do for this man who couldn't help himself, well, it's something that he could do in your life too that he is more than capable of doing in your life. He can give you a new start. Uh, this is the, the same Jesus who can heal your wounds. He can, he can bring peace to the chaos of your home right now. He can restore this, uh, the joy that maybe has, has gone missing in your life. He's the help for the loneliness. Uh, he's the one that can give us hope and a future, and he can give you influence. As we're going to see today, he can give you influence and an even greater reason and purpose to live for him in this world. And so human number nine, all right, we've got ten of them. Human number nine, we'll call him the demoniac, all right? That kind of sounds a little spooky, doesn't? But uh, the demoniac, human number nine, Mark chapter five, verse one, let's pick it up there. Mark records this. He says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, I want to show you a map here, and if you look closely at it, obviously the blue there in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. You'll see Capernaum up to the very top of the Sea of Galilee. To the left is Magdala, uh, Mount Arbel, where I showed you the picture where Jesus gave the Great Commission, would have been from this area around Magdala. And then looking across the Sea of Galilee is a key city for us today there in the green, a city known as Gerasa. Now, who are we talking about here when it says they went across the lake? Well, we know if we read the pages before it that it's Jesus, all right? And that's always a good guess. Uh, but it's Jesus and then his disciples. And again, Galilee is a sea, and we spent about five days around Galilee that I think uh, from the top to bottom is around 15 miles from north to south. And then at the widest part from west to east, uh, is about eight miles. And if you piece together uh, the different accounts of this particular event that we're looking at in Mark, which is also found in Matthew and Luke, we know that Jesus and his disciples left Capernaum in the north, all right, which was a headquarters for Jesus and his ministry, and they crossed the Sea of Galilee to this area around Gerasa on the eastern side of the lake. Now, I had a chance to spend some time around Gerasa. Uh, we started one of our mornings uh, near Gerasa. And while the precise location of the account that we're going to read about today is uncertain, uh, there is a strip of land there. And you can see on this next slide uh, this strip of land and the road just to the top of it. But there's a strip of land there, a, a narrow bank where you can look up from the water and you can see the cliffs, all right? And so if you're standing on this bank below, we didn't get that close to the water. Again, you can look up, you can see the cliffs. And in certain locations along the coast here, archaeologists have located these caves, all right? And you can see an example on this next slide. In different places, you can find these caves, which also served as tombs uh, in the past. Sort of gives you kind of a great picture, again, now of the story that we're encountering right now. Well, this trip to the other side of Lake for Jesus and his disciples is extremely significant. On the one hand, Jesus must have been very excited for the disciples. They were terrified. 
Now why? Well, going to the other side of the lake means they are entering a region that is known as the Decapolis, all right? Now, two words there, deca, which means ten, polis, which means cities. These are the ten cities. These were the Greco-Roman cities, but to any good Jew, no man's land. All right, you didn't go to the Decapolis. These are pagan cities forbidden for Jews that wish to remain holy and pure. You can see that region. You can barely see the word at the bottom of the screen, but in brown there is the Decapolis. It's believed that they had gone to this area. These cities were known for their ungodly influences. In fact, when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son running to a far off place, he was most likely referring to one of the Decapolis cities, cities like Scatopolis, where I showed you a picture of. And devout Jews wanted nothing to do. All right, they wanted nothing to do with the Decapolis, and so they avoided it at all costs. But guess where Jesus is taking his disciples? They're going right into it. And why here? Well, Jesus is tearing down some walls. He's rewriting some rules. He's expanding ministry to include more of the Gentiles. And more than that, Jesus is ready to demonstrate for his disciples that no one is beyond. No one, absolutely no one is beyond the love and the grace of God. And you know what? For us, and like the disciples here, if we really open up our lives to, if we're really willing to surrender every part of who we are to him, he's going to lead us into some places. He's going to lead you into some places. He's going to lead you into some encounters, some new careers, some new neighborhoods that maybe you wouldn't choose to go on your own, but he's going to put us into these situations, and he's going to ask us to uh, trust him in greater ways, but it's going to be in these unfamiliar and sometimes frightening places that in greater ways than we've ever seen before, he demonstrates his love and power for people. And man, who wouldn't want to see something like that? Verse 2, it says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. There's an ancient Jewish document that gives us four indicators, four tests really for insanity or madness, all right? Four indicators for insanity. They included four things. Number one, someone who would spend the night in a tomb, check, right? Uh, Someone who would tear their clothes, check. Someone that was willing to walk around naked at night, check. And uh, destroy things that they receive from others, check. Sounds like insanity, sounds like madness, For this man, that's this man. He's crazy, and in this case, demon-possessed, and it's difficult to understand why demon possession occurs. It's a challenging topic that we don't have time to tackle today, but what we do know, and what I want you to just take away and understand is this, is that Satan is at work in this man's life. Uh, He's influencing him in great ways. He's got control. Satan's game is always destruction. He's always after destruction, the destruction of an individual. He loves to destroy lives. He loves to destroy relationships and separate people from God. And we're not sure how or why he's having his way with this man, but Mark makes it a point to describe the hideous appearance of this man. I mean, picture a mess of bleeding lacerations and scabs and infections and scar tissue. I mean, he's living in a delirium of pain round the clock. No one could subdue him. He's isolated from everyone else. The point is that he's a mess. All right, he's a lost cause, more of an, an animal, really, than a human. He's got no one to turn to, but while everyone else sees a madman, Jesus sees a lost child, a human being 
And here's this great thing about this God of ours and what Jesus makes so clear for us that while everyone else had given up on the demoniac, Jesus sees a life worth saving, a life worth crossing the lake for. And see, for us and what we're reminded as we study the scriptures is this, that we were made in the image of God. Every single one of us. Genesis 1, 27 says, you were made in the image of God. And we bring glory to God when we live out this image. Every human, every life. It's why murder is so horrible. It's why abortion is so sad. It's why racism and hate are so unlike this God of ours. And that is because every life matters to God because every life, every person is created in the image of God. And for this reason, we can say, we can know, we can believe that we are loved by God. It's like Isaiah 54 verse 10 says, though the the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Uh, And how did he demonstrate his great love for us? Well, he sent his son for us. He gave us Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus into this world. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see how every human life is beyond measure to our God? It's beyond measure, so much so. Your life, my life, the people around you, the people we've yet to meet, how do we know? Christ gave his life on the cross for yours and mine and others. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 23, you were bought at a price. He says you were bought at a price. And then he says, do not become slaves of human beings. For this account today, do not become slave of anyone else, of evil. The only person you are to be a slave to is our God. And Satan hates this. He hates the value that God puts on life, and so he seeks to distort. He seeks to destroy the image of God in any man or woman. And from God's vantage point, that means then that any attack on a man or a woman is an attack on his glory and his image in this world. Pick it up, verse 6. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, this man is running to uh, not meet Jesus, but really to confront Jesus. And, And I don't want you to miss an important detail here, and maybe you caught it, but who's talking to Jesus in this account? It's not the man. All right, it's the demons that have possessed him. And so the, the man falls on his knees, and not as an act of worship, but this is grudging submission, really, before the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. And the first words out of his mouth are so significant. As Mark records, these words, son of the most high God, interestingly enough, this is the highest title used for Jesus in all of Scripture. Don't miss it. Even the demons, even Satan himself recognizes the authority and the power of God. And when they encounter him, they must bow and fall to their knees and submit to his power and presence. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Look at the response. My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And then he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of this area. Now a little side note here. A legion was the largest unit uh, of the Roman army, consisting anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers, as well as horsemen and other technical personnel. To the Jewish person, 
to hear something like this, to hear a reference to a legion. Well, a legion represented overpowering numbers, uh, relentless strength and brutal force. And so the point here is, is that this man is possessed by an army of demons. All right, They have control of him. They've seized him. They want to destroy and ruin his life. And they're off to an incredible start. Verse 11. It says, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, 2,000 swine is a lot of bacon. All right, and you know, don't don't check out with Jesus, all right, because he's against bacon here in this particular account, but understand what's going on here historically. For the Jews, all right, pigs were considered unclean animals. They were forbidden animals. Not the case in the Decapolis, all right? Remember, this is a Greco-Roman area. They, they regularly used pigs for sacrifices, uh, and, and this happened in plenty of other pagan circles too. Uh, everyone knew that Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, the great Greek king back in the second century B.C., had captured Jerusalem and had sacrificed a pig on the temple altar, the temple in Jerusalem, desecrating uh, the temple. The Romans also ate a lot of pigs. And, and so were the drowning of the pigs an example of God's judgment on these people? Possibly. It is possible. But I want you to notice that Jesus didn't send the demons into the pigs, but rather gave the demons permission to enter into the pigs. And then what happened when they did? 2,000 pigs rushed down the bank and into the lake and drowned. Now, is it fair to say that the pigs committed mass suicide. I've been working on that all summer, all right? Some of you will get that later on this afternoon. Some people believe the drowning of the pigs was symbolic of God's power over Rome. That may be the case, all right? There's an ancient artifact uh, in the uh, Jerusalem Museum that comes out of the first or second century A.D. Uh, this is a symbol of the Roman legion, a particular Roman legion. I don't know if you can notice or not, but the animal inscripted under it is the wild boar. And uh, so I think that's kind of interesting, kind of fascinating. Here's the thing. Whatever the case, the drowning of the pigs was a powerful testimony that this man had been freed, that he had been delivered and it's an amazing symbol of Jesus' power over evil in our world. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people there went to see what had happened. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened, had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And so the locals were upset. Why were they upset? Well, Jesus is bad for their economy in this particular case. He's potentially too powerful for them, maybe too frightening uh, as well. We're like that too sometimes if we think about it. We only want Jesus when we need him. You know, we want to sort of customize our relationship with him, only give him access to certain areas of our life. You know, maybe we'll say, Jesus, you can help me here, but these areas of my life are really off limits. But then there's the human 
the guy that we're looking at for today, the man formerly known as the demoniac. I don't know if you caught Mark's words there in verse 15. Look how he described the scene. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And what a great example of the power and the love and grace of God. And notice how he's sitting there. And some translations say he was sitting at his feet, which that's the posture of a disciple. The disciple would sit at the feet of his rabbi, and he's in his right mind, and he's dressed, and he's alert, he's free. And I know that you can see it for yourself, but what a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ, that he undid the work of Satan, and he transformed the life of this man no one could help, And he set him free. See, here's the thing for us. Sometimes we fall. And we fall so great and so far. And we mess up so badly. And we can descend so deep into sin, wreak havoc on our lives and on the lives of others and lose everything. And sometimes we'll conclude or sometimes others will conclude that the wounds are too great beyond repair. Can I remind you of something that is true for today? And that is that nothing can stand in the way of the healing and the transforming power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that for your life today? Man, I hope you've seen that in your life or maybe in the lives of others around you. Maybe choose to believe that for your life today. Some of you here today, you'd probably say you are hurting so badly right now, so lost, maybe so wounded and and deeply scarred. Maybe because of it, you've lost trust in others or they've lost trust in you. You've lost uh, family members. You've lost friends because of something that has taken place, maybe a season of life for you. You've lost everything. Friends, Jesus can undo the work of evil in your life too. He can set you free. He can heal your wounds. Jesus loves to set people free from sin, from wounds, Uh, from our fears and from the past. That's his goal. That's the goal that he has for your life and mine. And what he did for this man, he is more than capable of doing in your life or in any life too. Let's finish this story at verse 18. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell people in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And so look what happened. Jesus gave him his life back, all right, and then here's what he did. He sent him home to go and meet to see his family and friends. Now think about this from the man's perspective. All right, from the man's perspective, there must have been some fear. All right, like who am I? Or consider my reputation. Or look, look at all these physical scars that I have on my body. Or, or the fact that I'm going to be the one associated with the destruction of 2,000 pigs in the Decapolis. But somehow he overcame those fears and Jesus knew he would. And Jesus sent him home to tell his story. He said, go and tell others what God has done for you. And so he released him out as a kingdom worker. A kingdom worker is someone who goes out on mission and tells the story of God's work and their life and is ready to make disciples. And that's just precisely what this man did. He went home and he started telling others about Jesus. And one thing led to another. And pretty soon, many believe his story reached the entire region. And many assume that he became a very well-known evangelist, at least in that area, for Christ in the Decapolis. And while we can't know for sure, all right, there are some events that happen just a couple of chapters later in Mark, two events in the life of Jesus that tend to indicate what happened. Like in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is going to return to the Decapolis where he's going to meet a small group of friends 
who bring a deaf man to meet Jesus, and Jesus will heal him. And then get this, in Mark chapter 8, 4,000 people are going to show up in a location where Jesus will feed them, much like he did with the 5,000. And some speculate, how in the world did they know to go and meet this man named Jesus Christ? Could it have been one? The story of one healed life, one saved by God, a man who wasn't ashamed to tell his story. No one is beyond the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And just as God worked through this man in ways that others turned to Christ, that's what he wants for each of us, for every single one of us. He wants to use you, and he wants to use me to lead others to Christ. And we have an opportunity every day. In everything that we do, from work to school to our neighborhoods to when we're out shopping, we have an opportunity to tell the story of what Jesus Christ is doing in us. And when we come under his authority and we submit our lives to him and live under his direction, well, that's when things start changing and people find their way back to God. Christ wants to do this in you, Genesis, and in all of us. He wants to make kingdom workers out of each of us. But first you got to be willing to invite the healer in. And for some of you today to let him in and to have an encounter with Jesus like you never have before and to trust him and to believe that he can heal you just as he did with this man because what he accomplished in this man's life, he can accomplish in yours too. And he can heal your wounds and he can set you free if you trust him. No one is beyond the love and the grace of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to the other side of the lake. And that through this one account, you have demonstrated for us that no one is beyond the love and the grace of God. And Father, I pray that each person here today would know that and believe that. And for some, maybe to have an encounter with you like they never have before, to just open up their lives and to invite you in. Father, even right now, and maybe you're already at work doing this in some lives here today, will you set people free? Father, will you break the chains? Will you break the holds that the evil one has on some lives here this morning, Lord, and set them free and show us what it means to trust you and to live for you in this world. We open up our hearts and our lives to you this morning and right now. And it's in Jesus' name.